Hello, welcome to the Global Governance Perspective, a podcast presented by the Global Governance Institution. I'm retired Captain Andy Tian, the founder and president of the Global Governance Institution, in collaboration with the CNIA Center for New Inclusive Asia, a Malaysia-based think tank. The Global Governance Institution hold a virtual international event on democracy, human rights, and big power competition, whereby we invited a great group of serious international scholars to join us for an answer. I divided this event into two episodes. The first episode deals with geopolitical approach to the summit. The second episode will analyze the legal approach of the summit for democracy by taking the Yuga Tribunal's judgment as an example. Now let's listen to the second part of the conversation with a group of serious scholars. All right, let's uh, move on to actually a section two on the slightly different topic uh, uh, in association with uh, the recent, uh, you know, Wigo uh, Tribunal uh, in the UK, um, but without further you know, uh, my uh, uh, talk on that, I will start with uh, Dr. Edward Lehman. Uh, he's a co-founder of uh, Lehman Lee and Xu, a law firm in China and Mongolia. He's also the general counsel to AmCham US, first legal counsel to the American Chamber of Commerce, Shanghai, previously elected to both the Board of Governors of American Chamber of Commerce, China, and the Board of Governors of the American Chamber of Commerce, Shanghai, and the chairman and co-founder of Lehman Bush, a private investment bank and a professor of law. Uh, Edward, please. Great, it's good to be here. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me and, and it's great to be a part of a group with such a, a, a smart and uh, handsome group of people to be able to discuss a very you know, wide ranging topic, which is very important today. You know, the. One of the, the topic that I'm addressing as a lawyer is this Uyghur tribunal. I mean, uh, this so-called people's court, this so-called Uyghur tribunal, and the idea to kind of unmask it. I, the what, one thing I learned, I mean, even as a kid, my father would always say that a pancake, no matter how flat it is, always has two sides. And what we are not getting from the Uyghur tribunal, the people's so-called people's tribunal, is that it's not a court. It's, it's actually what we would call a kangaroo court. It's an American terminology. You think it would come from Australia, but a kangaroo court is a court that ignores recognized standards of law or justice and carries little or no official standing in the territory with when it, where it resides. And it's typically convened ad hoc. This kangaroo court is this, is this tribunal and it ignores due process and it's come to a predetermined conclusion and I'm going to kind of un unpack this a little bit but as ostensibly this kangaroo court terminology with regards to the to the Uyghur tribunal uh, it, it it comes from this idea that it makes leaps like a kangaroo uh, in other words jumping over and intentionally ignoring evidence that would be in favor of one party in a predetermined outcome so that's kind of what our friend, I mean, Jeffrey Nice, I'm gonna call him a friend because we're, I guess he must be lost um, with regards to uh, convening this, um, this uh, Uyghur tribunal, this people's tribunal and really conducting what's a show trial. So in essence, it's, it, there's a predetermined outcome. Uh, Jeffrey Nice has been selected for the specific reason 
that he was leading a, uh, uh, an international tribunal that actually was an international tribunal. This is no more than a farce. And what it has come up with is a kind of a show trial. And a show trial, just for everybody's edification, is a public trial in which the authorities have already determined the guilt or innocence of a party, which is what they've done with, uh, with the People's Republic of China with regards to this. The actual trial uh, has as its only goal the presentation of the accusation and the verdict to the public so they will serve as both an impressive example and a warning. And these show trials tend to be uh, retributive rather than corrective. And they're also conducted for propaganda purposes. So what do we have with the Uyghur Tribunal? Let me just tell you as a lawyer what it is. The Uyghur Tribunal is a company. It's a company limited by guarantee. So it means it's a not-for-profit corporation. There's many such corporations that exist, but it was set up for specific propaganda purposes. So that gets lost in the shuffle in the media and the headlines where they're saying there's this people's tribunal. What people, Mr. Nice? What people, a bunch of actors? What people, a bunch of uh, people making accusations? So <clears throat> what can I tell you for sure? Xinjiang is part of China. Xinjiang people are Chinese people. What's the tribunal? It's actually, like I said, the it's a company limited by guarantee. It was funded $150,000 by another company limited guarantee called the World Uyghur Congress, whatever the heck that is. And the Uyghur Tribunal is uh, supposed to be a so-called independent tribunal based in the UK to so-called examine evidence and uh, so-called human rights abuses by the Chinese. Um, but it should be actually under something called the Genocide Convention. So not everybody's uh, referencing the Genocide Convention on a daily basis. So let me unpack it a little bit for you. The word genocide didn't start until 19, uh, in, in, the, in the 1940s. It was by a Polish Jewish lawyer who set out what, it, what, uh, what happened in, in, the, in Europe under uh, Adolf, what was happening with uh, Nazi Germany and uh, Adolf Hitler. And then in 1948, they codified it under the uh, Genocide Convention. There was actually an avenue in which all these nations had signed up to be able to try this matter. And uh, as I said before, Jeffrey Nice was a lead prosecutor in one of these actions in a trial of Slobodan Milosevic. Uh, and this was set forth by the United Nations, okay? Not a company limited by guarantee, but the United Nations itself. It was signed up by members of the treaty and they went ahead with this thing under an actual law. So the International Criminal Tribunal of former Yugoslavia. And so I think what's been created here, which is a great public relations stunt, it's a great media uh, run, but it's not law. It is, uh, it is just a, uh, a, a, an issue that has been set up in order to try to make China look bad. So there is a law to be able to do it. And like I said, it's under the law of the uh, prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide or the genocide convention. When this was founded in 1948, I'll tell you a little interesting anecdote is that one of the first accusations under this law that was submitted to the UN after the convention was entered into, for into force concerned the treatment of black Americans for goodness sakes. The Civil Rights Congress drafted a 237-page petition 
arguing that even after 1945, the United States had been responsible for hundreds of wrongful deaths, both legal, extra-legal, as well as numerous other genocidal abuses. Leaders from the Black community, and these are well-known people, William Patterson, Paul Robertson, and W.E.B. DeBow, um, had presented this petition to the United States in 1951, uh, to the United Nations, I'm sorry, in 1951. However, these accusations uh, uh, were, uh, you know, under the civil rights, and it, it did not go anywhere. But what my point is, is that past is prologue. And take a look at what happened back then and what the accusations were back then under this genocide, which is an actual law, not a company limited by guarantee. Now, there, there's another thing that was brought up in this, uh, in this Uyghur uh, show trial, if you want to call it, that's been going on for some months. And one was the idea of compulsory sterilization. And I just wanted to point this out as a, as a fellow American, as a lawyer, um, and, and taking a look at the laws, policies, and regulations that we have in the United States. What is compulsory sterilization? It's uh, known as forced or coerced sterilization, and it's a government-mandated uh, program to sterilize a specific group of people. Okay, now, for nearly 30 years, the Supreme Court Justice, there's a guy called Oliver Wendell Holmes, very, very bright guy, probably the brightest guy that was ever on this uh, Supreme Court, wrote a lot of cases about freedom of speech, and freedom of speech is so very important. But one of the cases he did write had to do with a case called uh, Buck versus Bell. And in Buck versus Bell, uh, in a Supreme Court case, it said that three generations of imbeciles is enough. That was his quote, saying that there is forced sterilization, which is the law of the land today in the United States. So what I'm trying to do is point out to everybody here that there are laws, that there are policies, that there are regulations, and that they need to be followed in order to come to a conclusion. We don't want, everybody loves a good gossip. Everybody loves a good quote unquote media lynch mob, but People have to, the devil and God are in the details with regards to laws, policies, and regulations. And it simply has not been adhered to with regards to uh, this so-called Uyghur tribunal. Um, it is not reviewing evidence. It is not an impartial situation, even in the Nuremberg trials. So for those of you who know, at, at, at Nazi Germany at the close of World War II, that there was the Nuremberg trials were, were set up. And then there were also trials that were in the Philippines for what, what happened in Asia for the Japanese. <clears throat> Each of these persons was given a, 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 a lawyer, Hermann Goring, Rudolf Hess, uh, Albert Speer. These were all given lawyers and they were all given a chance to, to bring their case and their evidence. Um, certainly there were people that were actually found innocent. There was a, a, the head of the, uh, the economy, a, a fellow by the name of Schacht. He was represented by legal counsel. There was evidence. There was, it was a legitimate tribunal, and this is not a legitimate tribunal. So what you have here is a bunch of headline-grabbing uh, public relations people that are causing cognitive dissonance using a guy like Jeffrey Nice, who I'm sure is a nice enough person, but just completely misguided to be able to sign, seal, and deliver some kind of, I don't know, proclamation on a bunch of stuff that sounds legitimate, but is completely illegitimate. So China has signed up to the uh, Convention on Genocide. The uh, United States has signed up for it, as have many other nations. 
and they're not following these laws, policies, and regulations. And the thing is a bit of a, it's a bit of a laugh. It's, and what happens in this crazy world today is that all people do is grab headlines and nobody's actually unpacking it until it takes some lawyer or legal person to try to unpack and, and give this idea that this is really not fair. Everybody's entitled to a defense. Everybody's entitled to uh, due process. And there has been none of that for the People's Republic of China with regards to this. The United this has been brought up, by the way. There have been uh, different states within the United States. There have been different countries that have said that this is genocide and, and brought this up. Each of them has the right to bring it under the United Nations Genocide Convention. Each of them has not done it, or each of them has failed to do it. So what they need to do is follow the laws, policies, and regulations, which the world has established, which the United Nations has established, which, uh, and, and they refuse to do it in order to smear and grab headlines. And so I don't think that that's a very fair way to go about it. And what we're trying to do, everybody deserves uh, advocacy, Every, and that's what we learn in law school. Bad people, uh, people who are accused of different things involve advocacy, and that's how the system can be, become great, because there is this tension, and it's, it's set out by laws, policies, and regulations that we've all signed up to. The Uyghur Tribunal is not that. It is a charade, and it's unfortunate, because there may, be, may or may not be something there to it, but it's not the right avenue to go forward with it. Well, with that, I would like to say thank you very much uh, for, for letting me participate, and, and I hope to, uh, to be available if there's any questions or comments uh, further on in the discussion. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lima. Thank you for your wonderful speech, and uh, in particular, providing us with this background information about this uh, trial and, of course, uh, uh, trial of this nature. Uh, we know, you know, the key word is like a you know, genocide, but of course we haven't found any bodies yet. <laughs> um, but um, anyway, we will continue and we'll come back probably to discuss more about that. Uh, we have Dr. Tian Li, uh, assistant professor at the law school, Shandong University, China. His research interests are public international law, international human rights law, and international humanitarian law. His ongoing research is international law and cyberspace. Uh, Dr. Li, please. Thank you, Mr. Chair Xi, and uh, uh, good afternoon, Mr. President and uh, highly esteemed colleagues. I'm honored to be here uh, in this sym symposium as an academic junior. Now, in, in, in the next 10 minutes or so, I will report to you a preliminary observation I have made about a judgment de delivered by the Yugo Tribunal on Friday. So um, my report will focus on both the tribunal itself and the judgment. So uh, uh, first of all, for the, 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 uh, the, the tribunal itself, now after full reading of the judgment, the same question may be asked by the researchers and the practitioners of international alike. What is this tribunal? If the beyond a reasonable doubt standard proof that the tribunal claims to apply, then this should be a criminal type foreign. From legal techno uh, technical point of view, the standard of proof beyond all reasonable doubt ought not to be applied to establish prima facie responsibility here. So one might say that paragraph 77 of the judgment clearly stated that these individuals' responsibilities are not what this tribunal is mandated to consider. What then is the task of the, this uh, tribunal? Know that 
the judgment has spanned 26 pages by this point. One may also argue that in the introduction of the judgment, when paragraph one, two of one and four were read in, in conjunction, it becomes clear that this judgment preliminary, primarily concerned China's state responsibility for the alleged genocide, crimes against humanity, and torture. This is also manifested in paragraphs seven to 11 of the introduction of this judgment, where the tribunal says that, says, said that its main task is to determine whether the PRC has been and is attacking with the intent of destroying a part or parts of its own population. If that were the case, then the tribunal would be a judicial body akin to the ICJ. It is important to know that the ICJ in the application of genocide convention case, Bosnia versus Serbia, clearly stated that the evidence must be fully conclusive this is a lower standard than that of international criminal courts or tribunals. Bearing in mind that the tribunal has declared that it will not make any modification to international law in existence. However, my preliminary observation is that this tribunal is attempting to a bold venture in this regard to create a hybrid tribunal. And clearly, what this entails is beyond the capacity of the, this tribunal, both in theory and in reality. It may also be pointed out that paragraph five seemed to uh, indicate that the tribunal acted also as if it were a fact-finding body. The tribunal somewhat recognized this in paragraph 13 of this judgment. Such body, the, the fact-finding bodies, as this is often found in international human rights law, and one can locate them in the UN human rights charter mechanisms and treaty mechanisms. The mandate of such bodies reveals that they are not empowered to make any legal judgments or even to make attributions in the sense of the law of state responsibility for the acts in question. As far as the working methods of this uh, tribunal, I would say that in paragraph 10, the judgment claims that the tribunal members were working with no preconceptions, whereas the tribunal itself was somehow a product of preconceptions. Let me offer you an example. In footnote number 10 of this judgment, the tribunal used the word granted, followed by the phrase, China is treating the Uyghurs with horrific cruelty. In addition, this is a judgment in which little legal reasoning can be found. For example, the tribunal, it must be conceded that addressed the, the, the question of the applicability of the law to some extent. And in paragraphs one for, uh, 145 to 164 provides for the textbook enumeration of the applicable law. Then as a result, the tribunal should proceed with a convincing legal reasoning on the application of the law, taking into account the facts, rather than immediately following with a conclusion on the legal issue. Furthermore, by the tribunal's own account, no legal or other specialist's knowledge is required to understand the judgment. This can be found in paragraph three of this judgment. On the other hand, the judgment was formulated according to the, the, the court, the, the tribunal's uh, the account, that it is uh, formulated in accordance with international law and international legal norms. 
international is well known. Uh, it is well known that the international law, by its very nature, is an elite study, and uh, it's a highly professional branch. Okay, so let me talk about then about uh, uh, concerning the, the judgment. Having carefully read the entire judgment, I found that this is a declaratory judgment. In other words, it is a judgment without any operative part. This leaves me at loss as to what legal purpose this de decision is intended to serve, especially when reading after paragraph 187 of the judgment until its very last paragraph. If the tribunals merely start drawing international attention to the Xinjiang issues, then arguably the so-called great effort the tribunal has made has not yielded more merits. In these paragraphs, the tribunal did not make any ruling on this issue. Instead, it spoke at length about non-legal issues and the content thereof is more like a political propaganda. As I mentioned earlier, this is completely redundant in terms of the rule the tribunal has assigned itself. What is even more worrisome than this phrase, the Uyghur tribunals has repeatedly invited China to, uh, to, to, to participate in its proceedings. This request has been firmly rebuked by China. China's refusal in itself cannot just find anything I should say in honest, especially not any legitimacy, legal or otherwise, that this tribunal may derive from it. But it seems to convey a certain disturbing sense of political accusation against China. And for the structure of the judgment, this is a, a structurally incomplete judgment. At least the judgment failed to answer the following question that should have been included in it. Who are the parties to this case? And in particular, the complainants? If complainants do exist, perhaps only the tribunal knows who they are. Then what exactly were the claims? Are individuals who provide witness evidence within the scope of who the tribunal considers to be complainants? Many more questions can be asked regarding this area like this. So for the, uh, an, another concern that I have is uh, the, the substantive content of the judgment. Whether the same sort of acts to which different pieces of evidence point were evaluated rapidly in law, the tribunal did not specify how it applies these evidences, but simply asserted generally that the tribunal, having reviewed all evidence and made a primary finding of fact, considered blah, 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 blah. It should be noted that there are many similarities between the, the, the genocide and other legal concepts that bear racial characteristics such as racial discrimination, uphide, ethnic cleansing, and etc. Please know that here it is not suggested that China's alleged acts would constitute violations of international law to which these similar concepts refer. They should be examined with great caution. This is also the attitude that, that current international theory and practice adheres to. In its judgment, the tribunal has recognized that genocide as a concept with a high risk of being inappropriately applied. For example, then footnote number 10. Given that the tribunal has claimed from time to time to be working in accordance with international law and international legal norms. Nevertheless, 
the reasoning of the judgment leading to the conclusion about genocide is absent. I'm afraid that the same holds true for other allegations, for example, the, war, uh, the, the, the crimes against humanity and uh, the torture. As a conclusion, I would say that this judgment fails to meet the reasonable expectations of international law professionals. This is all my one side. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Lee, uh, for your detailed analysis of this judgment out of this uh, uh, short trial. Um, we will come back, as I said, uh, probably to look at uh, the, uh, the, the, the judgment in detail and uh, have some questions. And let's continue uh, with uh, Dr. Alexei Baikov, Associate Professor of the Department of International Journalism, uh, Graduate School of Journalism and Mass Communications and the head of master's degree program, international journalism at St. Petersburg State University. So Dr. Baikoff, please. Uh, good afternoon. At the beginning of the presentation, I would like to thank the organizers for the opportunity to speak and so share my thoughts on topical issues of international politics and mass media practice. Before presentation, I also would like to say that the topic of the Uyghur, uh, what I am going to talk about is very sensitive and we must discuss it very carefully. This issue is related with ethnic relations, with ethnic identity, with territorial integrity. Any harsh political actions, careless statements can harm the solution of the problem. Based on the historical experience of Russia, we can understand and the importance of the complexity of these issues. I must also say that the uh, national question, and in particular the Uyghur problem, is not my main sphere of interests, but I will try to share my thoughts on the assessment of this issue in the media perspective. One of the most discussed issues of recent days is the news about the Uyghur tribunal. The news comes that Uyghur tribunal rules uh, that China committed genocide against the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities. Let's examine a few questions about the problem that are important for assessing media perspectives. Has, has the Uyghur tribunal become a media event? What was the purpose of this media event and who can take advantages? Finally, how is the Uyghur tribunal is covered in the media? Let me give you a few quick remarks on these issues. The first question, has the Uyghur tribunal became a, become a media event? Definitely, yes. We can say that information about it is published in mainstream media and is put on the world agenda. Was it planned in advance to make the Uyghur tribunal is a significant media event? The answer to this question is also likely to be yes. The World Tribunal is perceived as a signal of crimes, as a signal of a significant event, regardless of whether the assembly may or may not make a legal decision. Using the World Tribunal to grab public attention, it's a skillful approach. Let's also pay attention to the experts who were involved in it. These are professionals who know how to prepare significant events and create an information agenda. We are talking about the leaders of international organizations and other activists. 
According to media reports, there were persons from the US government funded Victims of Communist Memorial Foundation, the US State Department's Radio Free Asia. There were advisors to the US Agency for International Development, Mission in Central Asia. The participation of professionals and serious funding indicates planned actions. Thus, we have grounds to believe that this is a well-prepared and pre-planned step. The ongoing situation indicates that the tribunal has become a high-profile media event. The second question is, what is the purpose of this event and who can take advantages? Founders of the tribunal indicate the aims uh, to examine evidence regarding China's human rights abuses against the Uyghur people. They say that the tribunal was called when uh, they became not other way to change anything in China with the Uyghur case, but let's also pay attention to a different sequence of events that is associated with this issue. We can suppose that Biden administration and US allies use Xinjiang's case in their policies, and uh, now administration tries to get consent for a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, which while largely symbolic aims to deprive China of attaining and legitimacy from uh, the event. Indeed, the diplomatic boycott is linked to human rights abuses in China. One of the most important cases is the situation in Xinjiang. Thus, the situation with the Uyghurs in China, the Uyghur tribunal becomes a landmark event. The tribunal finds China guilty. A number of countries have announced a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics. The decision is justified uh, by the violation of human rights. Uh, this topic has already been put on the information agenda. I will also note that the information agenda is not ambiguous. Thanks to diplomatic efforts and media activities of China, a different point of view is heard. For example, in the report of the American television company, CNN on the decision of the Agar Tribunal, different points of view are presented. The reporters note that China's ambassador to the United Kingdom, uh, Zheng Ziguang, has called the Agar Tribunal a political manipulation aimed at discrediting China. Zhao Lejian, a spokesperson for the Chinese Foreign Ministry, has called the tribunal a pre -anti, poor anti-China farce. CNN reports that on Thursday, the Chinese embassy in London called the tribunal a political tool used by a few anti-China elements to deceive and mislead the public. It is not a legal institution, nor does it have any legal authority. He added that the Xinjiang region now enjoys economic progress, social stability, and ethnic solidarity. China will remain focused on doing the right thing and following the path that suits its national reality. This point of view is presented in a report on the CNN website. It indicates the presence in the information field of various information points of view and voice of China. Let's move on to the third question. How is the Uyghur tri tribunal uh, ruling covered in the media? A quick look at the media coverage of the Ergo Tribunal reveals an interesting picture. As it turns out, even the American and European media are responding just
adjust to new events and are not systematically covering ergo issues. This indicates not systematic but fragmentary media coverage of the ergo issue. The search was carried out using the keywords ergo tribunal, uh, period 2020-2021, and here are some results. Uh, we see different newspapers, for example, in New York Times, uh, were published just four articles, CNN, seven uh, articles, Times, 12 articles, BBC World News, few dozens, uh, Russian newspapers, Rasiska Gazeta, Russian newspaper, only one article, and Russian first channel, uh, zero. Uh, these are the search results on the official media sites for the period from 2020 to 2021. One. Note that the media that were analyzed on their websites do not often publish information about the Uyghur tribunal in some media. For example, in the Russian media, the Russian newspaper, the journalists cover China positively. Here is a headline, for example, in a central place, the people, Chinese Communist Party, successfully advances human rights. Uh, let's move on the conclusion. We can assume that the frequency of publications is insufficient to form a sustainable public opinion about the Uyghur tribunal issue. At the same time, this is enough to put the topic on the information agenda. The topic on the information agenda can be an argument for justifying the actions of political actors. Approaches to media coverage of important political issues in different countries are associated with political alliances to which a country belongs. For example, in the official Russian media, the topic of the Uyghur tribunal is covered rarely and neutrally. In general, China's policy is assessed positively. This is in line with the official policy of strengthening relations between our countries. I thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Professor Baikov. Thank you for your presentation, you know, from the point of view for journalistic, uh, journalism, let's say, and uh, in particular agenda setting uh, with this bigger political uh, background over there, uh, you know, help people uh, to gain a deeper understanding of the issue. And then next, we have uh, Dr. Sanoji Rajan, a distinguished professor of international law and human rights, Zhejiang uh, Gongshang University, China affiliate, Harvard Humanity, Humanitarian Initiative, uh, Harvard University. Uh, Dr. Sanoji Rajan is an accomplished uh, uh, academician, researcher, administrator, and consultant with a PhD in international law and progressive experience working at a senior levels in international law and human rights for multiple institutions and countries. Um, Dr. Radin, please. Uh, dear fellow panelists, ladies and gentlemen, uh, at the outset itself, let me thank the organizers for giving me this opportunity to express my views on this issue, which is very pressing at this moment. Um, the fellow panelists have raised various pertinent points on the tribunal the People's Tribunal, the so-called People's Tribunal, including the politics behind it. I would not attempt it again. However, I would like to look into this issue in a different angle. As we know, Weigel uh, Tribunal is not the first of its kind as a non-state initiated uh, tribunal. 
the world has already seen uh, people's tribunals like the China Tribunal, the Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Commission, etc. So even though these so-called uh, people's tribunals claim to be judicial institutions using universal jurisdiction, hoping to be an alternative to the institutions like the international criminal law, and of course, international court of justice for that matter. In reality, they just remains as a tool of advocacy and activism for pressure groups. We can approach these courts in two ways. The first approach is by denying them in total as an advocacy effort and show them aside saying that they are just kangaroo courts. Or second way of looking at it is to analyze their structure and approach in a legal way. I think the second way is imminent at this point of time because of the continuous popping up of tribunals like this. So we need to see, of course, these are non-state entities, non-state um, companies, just like um, Mr. Lehman was mentioning, it's a non-profit company registered and they don't have a legal um, background to constitute a criminal tribunal like this. So it would be really interesting to look into the aspects of uh, the legal aspects, the legal veracity of these kind of organizations. So that is what I'm going to talk in the next 10 or so minutes, uh, very quickly. Uh, as a judicial institution, as they claim to be, they don't have any backing from any state and their relevance and importance will remain only if they form uh, and follow the norms of judicial institutions elsewhere or at international level. The judicial institutions are relevant only if they follow an established law and procedure. As far as this Uyghur uh, tribunal of any of this uh, kind of uh, people's code, the law and procedures they use are normally the established international laws and procedures which are available and accepted by majority of the countries in the world. But the way it is being implemented through these codes are questionable. That we all know the, the quality of uh, evidence collected, the way uh, the witnesses are being influenced, the biased notions of the judges, etc., etc., all comes under this uh, aspect of uh, using law accepted, law and procedure accepted by uh, international bodies. Then uh, the qualification and capability of the officers of the court to carry out the functions of the institution is also very important and is very questionable in many of these uh, institutions, in many of these uh, courts, so-called courts. Even though some of the judges and prosecutors are qualified legal practitioners, just like uh, we were talking about um, Mr. Nice. But most of them are not. And many of them are drawn only because they are associated with the cause for which they are implemented. That we will see as we go ahead discussing further aspects of this uh, analysis. This all diminishes its legal value as a code. Then comes the jurisdiction part, and we all definitely agree that they don't have any um, 
jurisdiction to entertain an issue like this. Just to analyze it further, international criminal jurisdiction falls on a subject matter, normally on three circumstances. There could be other circumstances also, generally on three circumstances. One, when the consent of the states through signature and ratification is accurate, which is mostly done by international organizations and international uh, courts. The second one would be uh, the compulsory jurisdiction accorded by an international organization based on a previous treaty obligation, just like ICTY and ICTR uh, got its uh, legal sanctity, just like what has been explained in the Tarish case. The Security Council initiated the establishment of this court, and there's a compulsory jurisdiction on that particular uh, subject matter. And finally, the universal jurisdiction. As we know, the first two doesn't simply, don't even exist for these kind of uh, institutions. But now coming to the universal jurisdiction, the answer is negative again. The main reason being such privileges are only given to sovereign states. There is no indication under international law, treaties, practice, or customs which entitles a non-state party to exercise universal jurisdiction. And last but not the least, if you uh, look at Another important aspect, perhaps the most important aspect of these tribunals or the uh, tests for these tri uh, tribunals are lacking of natural justice principles of independence, impartiality, and neutrality in legal adjudication, which is totally not found in these kind of constituted courts, people's courts. No need to mention that independence, impartiality, and neutrality are values which are imposed a duty on adjudicators to be independent, impartial, and neutral, at least as far as this is possible. When we talk about independence, impartiality, and neutrality, we are referring to values, legal principles, institutional uh, conditions, genuine duties held by institutions in first place, and secondly, coming to the second level of independence, impartiality, and neutrality, that is uh, that of adjudicators' own personal nature and their states of mind, which includes their beliefs, desires, you know, their alignment towards a cause, etc. all comes under this. So let's have a look quickly at these three important aspects and how they reflect upon uh, organizations like this. Independence under the influence of positive law is usually associated with certain institutional guarantees or safeguards that allows indicate, uh, adjudicators to free themselves to some extent from external pressure which making, uh, when making their decisions. Such safeguards include, among other things, uh, neutrality of appointment of procedure, the stability of the position, autonomy of the organization, uh, the legal basis of the organization, etc., a reasonable sphere of immunity and uh, inviolability to the judges, etc. If we look at the case of these kind of people codes, external pressure could be immense. It could be from governments, because the speakers before me has talked about how 
few other countries have influenced the visa tribunal. So that pressure could be immense after constituting a tribunal for a cause like this, and subsequently deviating from a predetermined judgment is impossible because you have a huge pressure from the governments who have funded you, who have promoted you in this particular issue. Then public opinion is a big thing where you are situated. Media demands are overwhelming in most of the cases. Then appointment of judges and other officers of the so-called courts are influenced by advocacy interests, for sure, because most of the people who are associated with such courts are none other than the people who work for this advocacy. So the fairness, the independence of their thought process is very much questionable. Then further, the judge's autonomy, that is also influenced because of the same elements, even if that person is from a different context altogether, because of the pressure which could come from other sources, when he is sitting as a judge would be overwhelming and cannot be retracted. Then coming to the impartiality, in contrast, is usually associated with the objectivity of decision or absence of prejudice towards one or other of the parties. There is also distinction to be made between personal impartiality, which depends on having no stake in the outcome of the proceedings, with the adjudicator simply being one more actor in the conflict that is being resolved, and the institutional impartiality, which is rather more related to what is usually referred to as an independence. So what here we are talking about is the impartial impartiality of the individuals who are involved and the impartiality of the institution as a whole. And we can assume very well that in tri tribunals like this, both personal impartiality and institutional impartiality are compromised, as the constitution of these kinds of codes are part of advocacy strategies and interests. Last but not the least, the neutrality is normally something which is going tandem with independence and impartiality. But neutrality may also refer to absence of some kind of nearness and the judge may have that nearness or affinity or proximity without it necessarily compromising his or her impartiality. So even if, as I was mentioning in the uh, impartiality part of our discussion, even if the judge is from another realm who has nothing to do with the cause which he is judging, his nearness and his proximity to the people who wanted this to be done definitely influences neutrality. So I, I think all these three are negatively impacting upon the constitution of uh, courts and tribunals like this. The analysis in total shows that the notion of independence, impartiality, and neutrality are elusive in the case of these kind of courts. And the general understanding of illegality of such institutions need to be reinforced. I will stop it there, and I'm happy to uh, come back and answer to any queries that may have in the subsequent uh, discussion part. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Rajin. Thank you for uh, stressing the importance of uh, independence, neutrality, impartiality for any trial in, uh, in legal practice. 
Um, so let's proceed to the next session. We have a commentary session. We have uh, uh, four commentators to uh, take a look at uh, the uh, uh, presentations by previous speakers. We'll start with uh, Dr. Saeed Mahmoud Ali, Associate Fellow, Institute of China Studies uh, from the University of Malaya. Uh, Malaya. Uh, Dr. Mahmoud has authored 10 books, including seven, a seven-volume series on U.S.-China strategic insecurity dynamics from 1942 to 2016. The seventh, titled uh, China's Belt and Road Vision, Geoeconomics and Geopolitics, was published uh, in early 2020. He is currently writing his eighth volume on U.S.-China mutual strategic insecurity dynamics. Uh, Dr. Ali, please. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and the organizers for inviting me. A very good afternoon to you all. Empirical evidence being central to recent discourse, I'm excerpting US archival records to demonstrate that America's rhetorical emphasis on liberal democratic values in designating China as an authoritarian revisionist threat to their US-led rules-based order belies the history of US-China relations over the past 50 years. The record speaks for itself. 20th May 1971, informing Premier Chou Enlai of US-Soviet anti-ballistic missile negotiations, President Nixon asked NSA Henry Kissinger to inform Premier Chou. President Nixon wishes to emphasize that it is his policy to conclude no agreement which would be directed against the People's Republic of China. Mr. Kissinger is prepared to include this issue and related questions on the agenda of the proposed meeting with the designated representatives of the PRC. 9th July 1971, Kissinger to Cho. For the past century, you were victims of foreign oppression. Only today, after many difficulties and separate roads, have we come together again on a basis of equality and mutual respect. We consider that the PRC, because of its achievements, tradition, ideology, and strength, must participate on the basis of equality in all matters affecting the peace of Asia and the peace of the world. 27, 28 February 1972, overnight. Kissinger to Chiao Kuanhua. Having first provided numbers of Soviet motorized rifle divisions and tank divisions deployed along China's borders, now provided details. Each motorized rifle division has 186 medium tanks, 200 APCs, four frog missile launchers, 144 artillery pieces, that is 54 mortars, 54 122 millimeter howitzers, 18 152 millimeter howitzers, 18 multiple rocket launchers, 28 anti-aircraft weapons, 45 anti-tank artillery, 1178 trucks and tenders. A tank division has 310 uh, 10 medium tanks, 80 APCs, four frog missile launchers, 18 mortars, 60 122 millimeter howitzers, 18 multiple rocket launchers, 68 anti-aircraft weapons, 94 tank anti-tank artillery, and 1108 general purpose vehicles. Similar details of uh, Soviet Air Force and missile forces were provided. 13th October 1978, NSA Brzezinski to President Carter. Both the Soviet Union and Vietnam are intent on making China an issue in our relations with them, and this factor will grow rather than diminish with time. Chinese diplomatic activity has become more intense, and the Chinese see their activities as complementary to our long-term interests in offsetting Soviet domination of the southern arc countries from Indochina to southern Africa. 20 December 1978, Nixon to Carter. No reasonable person would question Dr. Bozinski's assertion that the PRC, because of its control over population and territory, 
is in fact the government of China. However, the 17 million people in Taiwan who have prospered greatly under a non-communist government have an almost fanatical core of support in the nation, the USA and Congress. It is essential that you give additional reassurances firmly and unequivocally uh, that the USA will protect Taiwan. 31st December 1978, Carter to Hua Guofeng. The United States desires a world of diversity in which each nation is free to make a distinctive contribution to express the manifold aspirations, cultures, traditions, and beliefs of mankind. The American people value the enormous contributions the Chinese people have made to the achievements of humanity. And we welcome the growing involvement of the PRC in world affairs. We consider China as a key force for global peace. 25th January, 1979, Brzezinski to Carter. The US-Chinese-Soviet triangle will require particularly delicate management. Brezhnev's goal is to get us to assign primacy to our Soviet relationship while keeping China poor, weak, and isolated. Heightened Soviet-American tension would best serve Deng because it would increase China's tactical value to the US and would shift a portion of the burden for resisting Moscow from China to the US. Our interest is to improve relations with both Peking and Moscow and to avoid allowing one to use us against the other, unquote. 18 years of tacit US-China alliance followed. Arguably, China under Mao and Deng was much more communist or socialist and authoritarian than it has been since. That did not matter then. Official US grand strategic documents make clear US displacement anxiety is driving policy. Thanks for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Ali. Uh, next, we have uh, Dr. Julia uh, Rocknifant, uh, Assistant Professor at the School of uh, Politics, History and International Relations, University of uh, Nottingham, uh, Malaysia. Prior to that, she was the Director for Foreign Policy at EMIR Research, a Kuala Lumpur-based think tank. She has served as a research fellow at the National Research University Higher School of Economics in 2010 to 2019, and is currently a consultant with a, a PIR Center, a Moscow-based think tank specialized in international security and a nuclear non-proliferation. Uh, Julia, please. Thank you so much to the moderator and uh, to Mr. Kinky and to the organizers of uh, this wonderful event uh, today. And uh, it's uh, great that we all, uh, despite it being the weekend, could uh, get together uh, to discuss uh, the two important events of uh, the recent days. Um, I'd say it's quite a long introduction for actually a short in intervention that I'm uh, going to make, but uh, nevertheless, thank you so much uh, for honoring it. Uh, I would like to uh, say a few words um, about what I think on the topic and also to uh, give a couple of comments on what has been said uh, today in the course of our event. So, um, uh, to me, uh, the, the two matters that the, the uh, democracy summit, the, the Joe Biden's democracy summit, and uh, also the tribunal on uh, the uh, plight of uh, Uyghurs uh, in China, uh, they should be seen uh, in a larger context, uh, in the context of uh, all of us, well, in the first place, um, academics, researchers, analysts, but uh, also members of political establishment trying to grasp the new contours of the international system, which is in a um, 
state of a rapid change uh, at the moment, and um, which definitely departed from the um, state of uh, bipolar system and even from uh, the monopolarity, which uh, we could imagine for a short period of time to the state of how some colleagues would name it pre-chaos, uh, slowly sliding into a sort of chaos, which me also I'm envisioning uh, this pessimistic uh, prospect for the international system uh, uh, in a matter of a couple of decades. Uh, so uh, for the reasons that it's quite hard to uh, put it in a certain framework, and since we've departed from the frameworks in which we traditionally used to um, look at the international system, uh, I would like to uh, uh, draw your attention to probably two major trends, uh, which we are encountering right now. First of all, is the importance of uh, identity and values uh, within the international system. However, uh, when we, um, on, on the one hand, uh, we see that how much identities uh, and uh, not only as per the constructivist paradigm, but uh, in real life identities, values, ethics, and morals started to matter more uh, for the past couple of decades. Uh, but at the same time, we see this development mostly going on at the grassroots level. Uh, to be later on capitalized on uh, by the politicians um, in their policymaking. So at the same time, we have a contradicting trend of um, politicians, members of political establishment in um, formulating their policies, adopting a very much uh, real politic approach, which uh, we thought and hoped we would uh, more or less depart from, but um, turns out that we didn't. And it proves to be the uh, more, uh, suitable one uh, in the current state of pre-chaos or sliding into chaos. So uh, we've had several demonstrations of uh, what has been happening uh, recently. And it's not only about uh, China, the United States uh, standoff. It's not uh, only about um, um, speculations about us entering into the state of Cold War 2.0, but in day-to-day -day matters, for example, in how the European Union tackled the uh, immigration crisis. If we look at it closely at several operations, for example, in the Mediterranean, search and rescue uh, focus of those operations um, conducted by Italy, funded by, by the EU, uh, has been abandoned quite quickly uh, with this focus being shifted towards uh, preservation of border security and sovereignty uh, eventually. And several subsequent uh, operations that we look at in the Mediterranean, they were targeting preservation of the border security in the first place uh, rather than uh, human security. Uh, we can see this in the disparity of information coverage of migration crisis in the EU itself and in the Middle East, which um, turns to be hosting the majority of refugees. But we can see in the, in the matter of coverage, uh, it would look like the problem is much more conspicuous for the EU rather than for the such countries as uh, Lebanon, Jordan, or uh, Turkey, most of all, hosting the majority of refugees fleeing uh, the Syrian war. Uh, Syrian and the conflict in Yemen as well. Uh, um, in terms of information disparity, we, we, we wouldn't especially 
here located in Southeast Asia, we wouldn't need to go far. Uh, you could see how fast the focus uh, of attention shifted from the Myanmar and plight of Rohingyas and other minorities in Myanmar to other matters. And in fact, uh, look at uh, what has been high up in the international agenda for the past days. Uh, we've more often, we don't discuss matters, we, 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 rare, we, we more, much more rarely discuss matters of human security, uh, plight of migrants, refugees, minorities being oppressed, but uh, instead we are discussing matters of arm, arms control, which are still high up in the agenda. For the past days, uh, we've been all looking at how uh, negotiations on the pretty much constructed problem of uh, Iran's nucle nuclear program are been going on and in fact failing, not reaching uh, to any sort of successful conclusion. And it's going to stay the way for the observable, for the foreseeable, foreseeable protective. Um, on the other hand, uh, also we, should, we, should, we, we don't have to go far. We can look at the, uh, um, the United States outlook at uh, the regional matters. Uh, we are in a couple of days, we'll, we will be visited by, at least as per uh, what's being announced, if there's no change of plans, we are going to be visited by Secretary Blinken. And uh, for a number of reasons, I suppose that, um, um, which uh, I'm not sure from which party they are coming from, but uh, it's uh, not being uh, very widely advertised. Um, probably because we traditionally here in Southeast Asia attended to uh, take up proposals on that part of security, which is stemming from uh, economic background, economic benefits. And at this moment, uh, Malaysia still prefers to uh, maintain its um, ties, um, its economic ties uh, with China without uh, upsetting its uh, very much valuable partner. But we will see in a couple of days what comes out of this visit. And why I'm mentioning that, because we've already had uh, more high profile visits. President Obama visited uh, Malaysia and Southeast Asia a couple of times. And uh, at the time, I happened to be uh, a member of um, um, uh, CSO um, uh, group. And um, um, many times, CSO members asked President Obama, also the members of the Department of State who came to prepare for this for his visit uh, a month or two uh, prior to this visit, and they would consult to the um, uh, major representatives of uh, CSO community uh, in Malaysia. How can we help you? What should we tell your prime minister to help you with your work? In what concerns human security issues, human rights? Uh, and there were many proposals. And one of them, I, to me, the, the most outstanding one was threaten, threaten uh, the government, Najib at the time, threaten them with economic sanctions. How you do in uh, the other cases which are important to you. And I really doubt that it was ever done because the priority for the US government at the moment, and um, uh, I bet still now was lying elsewhere. And uh, probably this is going to be on the agenda of Secretary Blinken in, in the upcoming visit to see how um, Malaysia can be swayed. Malaysia and South East, uh, its, its partners in Southeast Asia can be swayed uh, rather towards the aspirations of the United States and not China. Um, so this is uh, in what uh, comes to the matters of uh, human security, including those 
like the plight of Uyghurs, the plight of Rohingyas here in the region. And uh, I don't see the reason to think uh, that there are any morals uh, considered uh, in this kind of approach. Uh, there, uh, I would like to um, uh, express my um, appreciation to uh, what Professor Gal uh, Luft said about uh, that uh, we need to let countries figure out uh, for themselves based on their culture and their economy, uh, figure out for themselves what path they would choose for their development, as well as uh, um, I think uh, very much uh, echoing that statement, uh, statement by Professor Jayanath. Uh, that we need to leave it to the system of international institutions, uh, the United Nations, uh, United Nations Charter and sovereignty still needs to be the presiding principle in the international system. Well, uh, I would uh, agree with uh, our uh, esteemed speakers on that uh, pretty much. However, we also should remember that the international system itself, the system of global governance finds itself in a state of crisis. On the one hand, we have the uh, international institutions which do not prove on a number of occasions to be uh, very effective especially in addressing problems uh, like minorities being oppressed in a variety of countries, because uh, simply it wasn't on the, uh, amongst the top priorities of uh, respective governments. Uh, we've seen Security Council being weakened by the continuous and increasing uh, use of veto power, also because of the adversities within the members, between the members of uh, the UN Security Councils, one of the highest institutions that could actually put could, could actually put words into action. Uh, but um, uh, while uh, ascertaining the sovereignty of states as a highest priority uh, in the current international system, and I think uh, it uh, seconds uh, many positions of uh, many international actors at the current uh, moment, I would also not discount the importance of how international community reacts to what's happening in the world. And with the trend of uh, uh, people indeed caring much more about their own problems, people adopting this uh, spectator sport outlook at what's happening in the world. And as speakers here already noticed that um, uh, for many people in remote countries, it doesn't matter either it's applied to Rohingyas in Myanmar or um, it's um, uh, plight of refugees fleeing Syrian or uh, Yemeni wars, and uh, then the countries that host them, um, uh, and um, the problem of um, uh, Uyghurs in China's uh, Xinjiang. So uh, I um, I wouldn't say that uh, I wouldn't discount the importance of that because we need to start from somewhere, and if governments don't care, we we we, we at least have grassroots levels, uh, grassroots level, level to rely on. Um, however, I wouldn't also give, a, provided the current state of international system, the spectator sport attitude and the overall dispersed attention, as we can see in the media, I think uh, uh, Dr. Bikov uh, here also outlined it very well. The interest to such measures is quite, is quite low. So, uh, what we are trying here to do uh, is to simply tackle the narrative which uh, the United States are trying to enhance and promote on the uh, Uyghur issue and, uh, and uh, not more than that. I think it will, in, in a couple of days, the attention to this matter will simply dissipate. How it dissipated to the Rohingya tribunal in the same way. Um, 
On the other hand, and I would like to um, finish my uh, intervention with this, uh, I still wanted to uh, say a couple of words on the uh, matter of uh, Uyghurs uh, itself. And um, I think I've been observing our Chinese colleagues also trying to find a suitable way how to tackle the anti-China propaganda, also using this um, sort of weak spot. And uh, uh, if I may, I find it a little bit crude. Um, uh, first of all, we need to understand that it at least provided the history of similar incidents. Uh, I think there is an understanding that there is not going to be a forceful military intervention in order to uh, rescue the oppressed minorities within China. So how we are going to tackle this is at the information field. And uh, so far, uh, China has been uh, losing this battle in a way, not losing completely, but having definitely having uh, uh, reasons to criticism because the approach to this was quite crude. And I would echo what uh, uh, Dr. Galluft uh, here said that show the world that your people live well. And uh, this kept coming again and again in my talks with our Chinese colleagues that show the world that um, if, if ever there was a problem, you were able to rectify it. The approach to this needs to be more subtle in order to dispel the accusations, either they are true or not, uh, the crude approach uh, would be failing um, uh, Chinese side in this propaganda war and propaganda. Uh, by saying propaganda, I don't necessarily mean it in a pejorative sense of the word. So the approach to this needs to be subtle. We understand there's not going to be military intervention to decide the attention to the uh, tribunal. Uh, tribunal is going to uh, dissipate in a couple of days. But uh, what can be done is the approach to propaganda on this front needs to be more subtle, more proof probably needs to be more substance to the Chinese rhetoric needs to be provided in order for it to be successful. And um, um, I think colleagues uh, who are dealing with journalism here would uh, agree with me on that. And that would also, I think, fit uh, very well in the uh, current trends, which the international system is uh, moving towards uh, since uh, many battles are being fought in the information front rather than anywhere else. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, uh, Julia. Um, you mentioned about the information disparity, and this is a case actually uh, in terms of uh, information disparity um, it, for any country. Uh, you know, if you are say on the uh, let me see uh, competition uh, with the U.S., U.K., and the uh, Five Eye Media, and you compete with them in their native language <laughs> English. Uh, it's very difficult, I guess, to win an uh, information war, for example. Uh, but anyway, but this is a question which we realized, I guess, you know, uh, for, for China to do a better job to present their case uh, to the international community. Um, you know, this reminds me also about this, uh, you know, the time running up to the Iraq war. You know, almost all US media, every American were mobilized to support the war with a strong belief there's weapons of mass destruction. And later on, what we find until today, there's no weapons of mass destruction being discovered. Uh, for Chinese, they would say, this is a case with weaker people in China. If you compare the living standard of weaker people to the black people, for example, in the US, you can see 
you know, which group of people is living a happier life, probably. Uh, unfortunately, yes, I guess I agree with you that Chinese should do a better job over there. Uh, but let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, next, we have uh, Mr. Howard Huxter, as English teacher at Beijing Normal University, Hong Kong Baptist University, United International College. He's a British citizen with a living and working experience in the UK, France, Netherlands, New Zealand, Canada, China, uh, probably uh, Ms. Howard. Uh, Howard is a person with authority to compare and judge with uh, his uh, wide extensive experience. Howard, please. Um, well, it was, um, yeah, I sort of learned a lot, I think. Um, I particularly thought um, Professor Jayanath was interesting when he said that, um, you know, there is no universal democracy. It's different, you know, wherever you are. And certainly in, in Britain, you know, we have a different um, idea of uh, liberty, freedom, democracy, whatever you want to call it, than even France, where I was working for a long time. And other countries, you know, the voting system is different. So, um, you know, he was quite right. And I think that is, you know, the, the word democracy is kind of banded around a lot as, as a sort of universal thing. And I don't think it's like that. Um, um, I quite like the word liberty, which if I can quote George Orwell, he said that um, if uh, liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell other people what they don't want to hear. And we certainly um, do that a lot in the UK. Um, and then another uh, point is that when I lived in Canada and I was in America, there was a book at that time, back in the uh, 70s, called um, um, The Greening of America by Charles Reich. And that is when, after reading it, I decided, um, you know, I decided, I thought that the, the real problem is not politics, it's big business. And big business are uh, um, trying the same model. I, I would have hoped that with the COVID virus, uh, the, um, um, the business would have had the chance to reorientate itself. And there's, there's no sign that that's happening. Um, and uh, there is a, if anyone's interested, a French economist called Piketty, who's just written a book, and he has uh, a new model of economics, which um, is quite different to the established one. So I think that is the, the thing. And also, I, I also like to mention that what people, a lot of people have forgotten about is the limits to growth, which was the Club of Rome's first uh, book back in the 70s. And I believe it got a bad press. And I believe that this was due to um, business, actually. You know, and they didn't like this. They said the model made at MIT wasn't good. And I think uh, it was good. And now people are talking about it again. You know, that is the three um, limits to growth are population, uh, the environment and leisure. Leisure being, you know, the, the, uh, the, the coming of AI, meaning uh, they would be doing our jobs. And um, there was a second report to the Club of Rome, which I actually interviewed the co-author, Edward Pastel, uh, called Mankind at the Turning Point. And now it's like now we are at the turning point. And um, um, it, it didn't get published as a book. Um, I don't even know if it's available online. I think there was a review of, of it uh, somewhere I found, but it, it didn't get published as a book. And uh, uh, sometimes now you might find uh, people have realized that the Club of Rome had the right idea and that, that they were they were, you know, on the right path. Um, 
And as a as a rider to that, I mean, talking about big business, uh, anyone who knows about the recent um, COP26 um, in Scotland, the biggest delegation there were from the fossil fuels industry. Um, and so, um, you know, I'm basically saying that politics carries on as as sort of normal, really. But um, the real threat to uh, us uh, to life on Earth is is um, big business actually. So there we go. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. Um, uh, I could say a lot more, but I, I I guess we're running a bit late. So yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Howard. Thank you. Uh, next, we have uh, Dr. Wu Meng Yang, uh, distinguished research fellow from Global Governance Institution. Uh, Dr. Wu graduated as a joint PhD in international human rights law from the Graduate School of Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, CAS, and uh, Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Uh, Dr. Wu, please. Thank you. Um, sorry, I look like this. The camera of my laptop is in the left corner of the screen. <laughs> um, I'm honored to have this opportunity to attend this dialogue. Um, and I enjoyed very much the interesting topics and valuable insights offered by all the speakers. Um, regarding democracy, I agree with um, Dr. Gail Luft and uh, Kolombaj that it should be the people to decide whether the system is working and what is democracy. And there are more than one definition and understanding of democracy, and it is not um, IKEA furniture that could be put together anywhere according to the same instructions. Um, and for many developing countries, small countries like Dr. Uh, Muzaffa said, the important question is how to make people's lives better, right? Suffer less to benefit from a more just world order, a more balanced world. Um, and regarding the so-called uh, Uyghur tribunal, I agree with Dr. Lemon and Dr. Tian. It is basically um, a show trial or propaganda. It is not a judicial body, but it, but it tries to look like one and calls itself an independent people's tribunal. So it leaves an impression of impartiality and independence. And these are very important impartiality and, and independence, as Dr. Jaren said. Um, to a real tribunal, right? But we're not really talking about a, a real court. Um, and personally, I do cast certain doubts on the impartiality of both some of the judges and also witnesses, um, and also the credibility and reliability of the evidence. Um, for example, I think in one of the report used as evidence, um, I think there was somehow linked the uh, five-year plan um, the, let me see what is called, um, five-year plan of the textile, textile closing industry to coercive labor transfer. Um, and it just makes me wonder like whether they will do the same, like if the U.S. Department of Labor or state governments announced any long-term plan or program to boost economy or employment you know, will that be interpreted into like measures forcing people to do labor or something like that? Um, but I do agree with Dr. Baikov that these are professionals and they do know how to launch information propaganda. And this incident um, has been widely covered by different media. 
um, even though some reports and information shared by the expert witnesses um, and organization, non-governmental organization are not new and they were just, just sharing them again. Um, but for me, it's really like a one-way storytelling. Um, but put, put aside all these accusations and finger pointing, I think in the end, what is more important is what Chinese people feel, right? I, I think human rights propaganda and human rights are different things and human rights um, never really happens in Geneva or New York. Um, so I think what is more important is um, the lives of Chinese people and chi how China actually fulfills its obligations under international treaties. Uh, we are parties of the ICESCR, the Convention Against Torture, Genocide Convention. Um, so I think more important is how China actually um, fulfills these legal obligations and only concrete and substantive protection and promotion of Chinese human rights, I think that counts. Okay, that's all for me. Thank you for your attention. Well, thank you, Dr. Wu. At the last part, we will have uh, Captain Tian to have some concluding remarks. Uh, Captain Tian, can we, before you start the uh, speech, can we have like 10 minutes Q&A session? Uh, Qing Qi, do you agree? Let's have uh, some. Uh, yeah, yeah. Minutes if there's any question, yeah. Yeah, if there's any question, please raise your hand and uh, you can ask it directly. Direct your question to the individual speaker or as a general question, you know, see any speaker will uh, want to pick up to answer your question. Can I abuse my position as a moderator to ask the first question? Yeah. Um, uh, I have a question for Dr. Gal Luft, uh, you know, with uh, uh, President Biden has said that, you know, during the UN speech, uh, you know, he said it was some, you know, in an emotional way, you know, I'm not uh, looking for a cold war or creating rigid blocks in the world. Um, but if you look at uh, what his policy toward China, for example, you know, democracy summit, and also the boycott uh, to the Beijing Winter Olympics, uh, some people would say, you know, you are doing exactly the opposite uh, of what you have said. You know, in what way I, I'm wondering, like, uh, you know, the democracy summit will further distance like Washington from Beijing and Moscow. People would see that as a part of the effort to contain Beijing and Moscow. Yes, um, I think that um, one of the sort of least um, discussed issue in his decision-making is the local politics, domestic politics. Uh, I really believe him. I really believe that he does not want a Cold War. He does not want to escalate, but he's a weak president. Uh, he's deeply unpopular. Uh, he is uh, challenged not only by Republicans, but also from his own base, the, the, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party with all of its intricacies and, and agendas. So he is like a gazelle uh, in the savannah surrounded by hungry lions. And I think that much of what he's doing on China is uh, just uh, a way of his showing that he's not weak on China. Um, I think that this whole, for example, boycott on the Olympics has a lot to do with uh, his way of showing that he's doing something because not doing anything would be perceived as a weakness 
and it would have exposed him to, to a, a very intense criticism. Um, and, and let's not forget that the, the midterm elections is an incredibly important moment in American politics, because if he loses either the House or the Senate or both, he becomes a lame duck president right there. Um, and there's so many challenges that he has to deal with domestically. And China is the easy target is because it's the only area, the only issue where he can enjoy support from uh, both parties. So I really believe him. He does not want a Cold War. He does not want to be, you know, he has, you know, with anything happens with Iran and with Russia and Ukraine and, and, and the border issues and the inflation and COVID, uh, he has more than enough to deal with. But unfortunately, his tendencies toward China, to me, are a reflection of his inability to claim uh, his own independent agenda and always being dragged by the political forces at play. And this is what it's all about. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Luft. We'll see any questions from the audience, any questions from other speakers uh, to the colleagues. You know, I, I had a question there. Edward. Uh, you don't Go mind. Ahead. Yeah, hey, good, good, yeah. To, good to be a part of the group. And, you know, to shout out to Malaysia down there and Dr. Julia Ropen, Ropenford there. Uh, I, you were saying that China's kind of done it ham handedly or, you know, they, their, their uh, approach hasn't been the best one. But, I mean, what would be your suggestion for them otherwise uh, to go forward? I mean, I'm just interested. I, I, I don't necessarily agree with you. I, I mean, disagree with you. I, I would say that this is a new role for China to try to, to, to react to, to different things that are going on around the world. Um, but I, I'm just curious as to what solutions you might offer to the Chinese to, to rectify that. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Edward. Um, may I just uh, uh, specify what exactly you disagree with me on? on what no, no, I didn't disagree. I was saying that you were saying that uh, that maybe their approach has not been as good as it could be, perhaps, and unless I misunderstood your your comments. Um, and and what this is the constant thing. I mean, I've, I've moved to China in the 1980s, been resident in China ever since that time. I've sort of seen a little bit of, of what's gone on uh, during that time, the greatest economic transformation in the history of the world. This, uh, this dichotomy of being moving from sort of a third world uh, nation into, into a first world nation, into being a nation that, uh, that could be the strongest economy in the world. I, I think that they are, one thing I can say is having been a legal professional here, they actually open up the doors to us and say, hey, we're writing a law, we're writing a policy, we're writing a regulation. Hey world, hey guys, hey people here. You know, how, what are your recommendations on writing this law policy and regulation? Um, and, and they, you know, they talk to different things, Hanks and whatnot. I, what, what I'm saying is that there is a certain amount of uh, willingness, I think, to, to listen to where they might be making uh, mistakes and then backtrack. And, and uh, the one thing that's been great about the policies in China is that they're, you know, they can be done with one voice, they can be done kind of quickly. 
but they can also be changed very quickly too if they if they see it's not working for them. I mean, this is my own personal observation. So I, all I'm, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying where could they improve? You mentioned that there might be some level of, of interaction that might be better. Thank you for sharing your perspective. It's it's always valuable, and I'm I'm not saying it just for the courtesy. Um, well, um, I was talking about the information field in particular, and of course, well, I won't dramatize it to say that my heart bleeds for China, but definitely I uh, can see that China is attempting certain effort, but it looks like maybe not enough. And maybe I will uh, bring up an example which uh, illustrates uh, illustrates what I'm trying to say uh, better. Uh, at some point, I think. A couple of years back, maybe three years back, I remember that China tried to sponsor efforts searching uh, for um, analysts, academics, uh, publicists, mostly, mostly people who publish it, get it out there in the um, uh, mainstream, uh, not so mainstream media in uh, different countries from the Middle East uh, throughout Southeast Asia to Eastern Europe, trying to think how um, an alternative narrative uh, could be suggested on, on Xinjiang, on uh, Uyghurs. And even in Malaysia, there is quite a complexion of how media, how analysts and even politicians approach it. And usually it's interest-driven, um, economic interest-driven most of the times. Um, and, uh, we tried to help um, some colleagues try to come up with suggestions like how it can be done subtly because we are dealing on the one hand we are dealing with the western and again i, I don't want to demonize anything but it's it's a big media machinery very professional um very skillful in how to subtly suggest and push for an argument uh on the china side when um, um colleagues uh, try to propose something very subtle for example let's say starting to ask questions like why in the first place this uh, um, matter of Uyghurs came up uh, what is trying what are they trying to, to achieve and um, second uh, part of it could have been China providing a proof to providing more substantial, more convincing proof, rather than just simply trying to dispel the argument, the, the wave of arguments coming from the West by saying that, no, nothing like this is happening. And we are simply not willing to even discuss this. That's what I mean in what it should be more subtle. And at that point, Chinese, our Chinese colleagues were not very receptive towards this uh, uh, kind of suggestions to make it more subtle for it not to look like a very crude counter propaganda and experts are here experts not only in international relations, but most of all I, I guess I'm referring to experts in the media studies in journalism, and they might be underutilized for this cause and. Um, uh, speaking of this, I guess we've had examples of various countries also having kind of their own internal issues and uh, a lot of the battle is going on in the information battlefield. And um, we could also look at that, that experience, how it was done. I'm not saying to condone um, cases of uh, if something is really happening, but since we're dealing with it in the information battlefield, the, the methods of dealing with it should be uh, thought of accordingly. Great. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, thank you very much for that. I, I you know, I, no disagreement. I, I think it, again, it's a brave new world for the for the Chinese to try to 
yeah. to try to speak up on, in, in uh, media setting worldwide. And, and, uh, and I think that it's coming, you know, it has, it has some improvement to be made. And, and I, I don't disagree. Sometimes you get a top-down kind of decision-making situation where you think you're having dialogue with people on a particular topic on how to better move forward their agenda. And uh, those people are not the decision makers, unfortunately. It's people who you, oh, you're not speaking with sometimes, which I, le I think leads to frustration for think tanks and other types of folks um, uh, until those decisions are made. So uh, yeah, thank you very much for those comments. Thank you, thank you, uh, Edward. Thank you, Julia. Uh, we'll, uh, we come to the end, ending part of the discussion. We will invite uh, uh, Captain Tian Shi Chen, uh, the founder and the president uh, for, of Global Governance Institution, uh, to give us the concluding remarks. Captain Tian, Thank please. You. Thank you, Mr. Chair, uh, for your wonderful moderation. I want to thank all our participants for their brilliant, well-considered, and unique insights. I'm sure that our audiences have also felt the same. Thanks also go to our co-organizer, the Center for New Inclusive Asia, and in particular, President Ko King Ki. This dialogue would not have been so successful without your tremendous efforts. After hearing all these excellent remarks, I'm inspired to share a few points. First, democracy is diversified and not necessarily equivalent to good governance. Even among the West, Democracy in Northern Europe is different from that of East Europe. Singapore is not invited to the summit for democracy and may deem authoritarian regime by the United States as host. However, it is commonly agreed that the Singaporean people live a happy and prosperous life under this regime. Not to see the truth that in history, all the four Asian dragons realized economic boost actually under single-party ruling at that time. Second, human rights is a process and not an end. When the U.S. Human Rights Alliance examines China's human rights issues, it always makes a horizontal comparison between the East and West with a magnifying glass and never observes China's changes from a vertical perspective. Taking myself for example, when I was born in a rural village in Shandong province, the house is made of mud, and the only electronic appliance in the house is a torch. The government-led poverty eradication campaign have brought great changes to my hometown, which goes beyond my words. Even in the West, the natives of America, the Inuits of Canada, and the Aborigines of Australians all are examples of areas of improvement for the Holy West Alliance Human Rights Protection. Third, law is a guarantee of people's rights and not a tool to be weaponized against people. The allegation of genocide in Xinjiang, China by the Uyghur Tribunal is not alone. In recent years, this obsolete legal term coined by a Polish lawyer back in 1944, was rejuvenated in the former Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Sudan, and Burma. All these cases point to the single fact that 
none of the allegations targeted the West. However, it is admitted even by themselves that atrocities were committed against the native Indians in America, in New in Canada, and Aborigines in Australia. I think the answer speaks for itself. I very much want to invite our speakers to Xinjiang to see the truth with their own eyes, because we as lawyers believe that any accusation should be based on law and facts. Finally, I would call upon all countries to try to resist the Tokokui arguments. Atrocities in other countries do not make excuse for you to violate international law in your own country. It is the obligation of our international scholars to fight against the politicizing of democracy, to fight against double standard in human rights, and to fight against weaponizing of international law. Given the pandemic and the climate change as common threats, I strongly call upon international community to put a stop to the big power competition so that resources could be saved into cooperation in relieving people from being mistreated. Thank you all. This is the end of the second part of the two-part episode on legal approach to democracy, human rights, and big power competition, where the delivery of Uyghur tribunal's judgments as an example of big power competition is analyzed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy our program. Please do follow and subscribe this channel, The Global Governance Perspective. You could also follow us on our Twitter and Facebook to write your comments. Look forward to your joining us next time.